Welcome to Sounding Out Horsham. I'm Anna. And I'm Emma. And today we're talking wildlife conservation with our guest, Dr. Nikki Tagg. Nikki is a conservation scientist with a particular interest in the maintenance of and threats facing biodiversity. She's also head of conservation of the Born Free Foundation, which is a charity based in Horsham, which works tirelessly to stop the exploitation and suffering of individual animals living in captivity or in the wild. Before arriving in Horsham, Nikki spent over 10 years in Central Africa. Dr. Nikki Tag trained as a zoologist at the University of Wales in Cardiff and has a PhD in evolutionary ecology from Southampton University. After achieving her PhD in 2004, Nikki spent the best part of the next decade working with great ape conservation and research projects. In 2018, Nikki moved back to the UK and that's when she started working for the Born Free Foundation, where she started as conservation manager and then shortly after becoming head of conservation. Today, Nikki oversees the design and implementation of five conservation programs in Africa and Asia, dealing with chimpanzees and gorillas in Cameroon, two lion programs in Kenya, one which focuses on elephants and giraffes, and the tiger conservation program in central India. Nikki takes a really holistic view of conservation, and we're really looking forward to talking to her more about her work and finding out what a conservation scientist actually does and also how we can as individuals can get involved and help with conservation. It's so nice to have you here Nikki. Thanks for joining us at Sounding Out Horsham. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. You left Africa to move to Horsham and you're now the head of conservation at the Born Free Foundation. And we're going to come back to that but can you please start by telling us a bit more about where this interest in great apes and conservation comes from? Um, Yeah, so, well, I mean, I think I was always interested in animals when I was younger in nature, Um, and I liked science at school and was quite good at science, so they kind of just worked together. So I did science, uh, you know, GCSEs and A-levels, and then did a degree in zoology, Um, and was sort of already thinking about, you know, wanting to travel out to Africa, did have a, a field trip out to Kenya during my degree, but then went on to do a PhD, which wasn't really related to conservation or it was sort of more about fundamental ecology. So not really applying it, but almost theoretical ecology. It was a great few years at, you know, doing the PhD. I enjoyed it, but it sort of took me off track slightly from from what I was keen to be doing in reality. So then I spent you know the whole time sort of thinking, OK, what, what am I going to do? How am I going to get to Africa? So as soon as I graduated, I then started doing some volunteer work, first of all. Um, At the time, it wasn't sort of an easy career path to be a conservationist, so I sort of stumbled into it. It is easier these days. Um, So I went out and did some volunteer work with Great Ape uh, conservation and research projects. So people ask me, why Great Apes? And actually, I think that one's tricky to answer because I don't think it was... I mean, they are fascinating animals and probably very little matches the joy of the the few experiences I've had of actually seeing groups of wild chimpanzees in the forest. But it wasn't so much for them, I don't think, that I went out there. It was more for Africa and the forests. Mm. I I love the culture and and something about tropical rainforests is just magical. And my first actual uh, paid posting was in Gabon and my job for a couple of years was just to walk around the forest looking for great apes. Um, We did see them quite often. We'd see them sort of maybe once a week or so. But even if you didn't see apes, you saw something amazing. And I just, I love that about the forest. I love, you know, from the tiniest little insects, the butterflies, the millipedes, these big 
fat millipedes yes. sort of you know, the thickness of a sausage and twice as long just yeah. stunning and then up to of course you know the great apes and the forest elephants you would see something new every day and it was just amazing just to be there so would you spend the whole day out in the rainforest and just looking out for whatever you could see like obviously you were going to look for the great apes but yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it was the beginnings of a, a research and conservation project. And the plan was that they wanted to habituate the apes, which means simply getting them used to people so that they can eventually bring tourists in. Um, oh, so I was there at the very, very early stages. We, you know, we were barely even being able to find them, let alone stay with them for long. Um, and now, actually, you know, many years later, it's a, it's now a tourist destination. This is Luango National Park in Gabon. And you can go there now and, and see the gorillas. There are habituated groups of gorillas and chimps, I believe. But I was there in the very early stages. So the first step was just we have to find them. We have to understand where they are, yeah. what they're doing, you know, learn about where the groups are, because obviously they have territories. And they move around within those territories. You wouldn't or you would, I suppose you start to learn where they were. Yeah, that's true. You would start to get an idea of, you know, there, there were different groups of chimpanzees. We'd give them names, you know, eventually, and this would be the Rakambo community over here, and then there'd be another community over here. And they're quite different. Chimps and gorillas are quite different because chimps live in much bigger groups that can, that we call it fission and fusion. So they sort of break into smaller groups and come back together depending on the time of year and if there's lots of fruits in the tree and various other things. Whereas gorillas live in very much sort of family groups yeah. with a silverback and several uh, females and the young. But we would gradually get a sense of where to go if we wanted to find the chimps today. And actually after a while we realised that the gorillas were, were sort of inland a bit in a very, very swampy area of the park. So I don't know if your listeners might know about Luango National Park. It's amazing. It's on the coast of Gabon. Yeah. So you have the, the rainforest and you have tracts of savannah. So we were camped sort of on the savannah. And then you have coastal forests, you have swamps there, and then you have the beautiful white beaches. It's wow. where the, the famous surfing hippos mm. um, have been filmed before. You get, you know, gorillas walking up and down the beach. It's just a stunning wow. place. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Just hearing you talking about it. Yeah. But I'm curious about the conservation strategy. Is that still how you work with conservation with great apes? Or do you try to make them um, accustomed to human beings so that tourism is, is like a driver for conservation? Is that... How That's right. Yeah, that is it is a conservation model. So we don't do that everywhere, but that is a model that, that a lot of organisations use. It, it can bring in, of course, a lot of money mm. um, if we can bring tourists to see wild animals. I mean, the famous example is mountain gorillas. Yeah. You know, they've been brought back from the brink and a lot of that was because of ecotourism. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't work everywhere and you have to be careful. I mean, first of all, you need sort of infrastructure in the country. So later on, when I worked in Cameroon, there wasn't really that infrastructure f- to bring tourists. Yeah. Um, it also has to be a safe country. You know, there's a lot of considerations for tourists. Yeah. But but also, um, you don't always want to habituate, for example, great apes to humans. If it exactly. means they'll be then, they might be more vulnerable to poachers approaching them. There's obviously the disease mm. issue. So there are concerns. You know, you have to do it very carefully. But it has worked very well. In and also, yes, wouldn't that potentially disrupt their natural living patterns if there are too many humans? Yeah, well, it's, it is very carefully regulated. Yeah. So the idea is that you don't disturb them. There's a certain distance that you have to stay away and a certain amount of time that you spend with them and then you leave them alone again. Mm. So, I mean, of course, there's you know some level of interaction because they're very intelligent animals, so they're yeah. just as curious as we are. Yeah. Um, but, the, you know, we are very careful not to be not to be invasive at all. And this might sound like a stupid question. What's the main aim of your work? To, is it to, to protect their habitat or...? 
what's the main aim with with what you're doing yes I suppose it differs depending on the, the projects I've worked on over the years the one in Gabon um, it was when I was working for the Max Planck Institute um, in Leipzig so they were setting this up as a research and conservation project so the idea was to protect the animals of course because you know I don't think anyone these days does research on animals like that without also being very aware of the need to conserve them mm. but it was quite heavily geared towards understanding them as a population right. and doing research on them and as you, I think you know a bit about the Evolutionary Anthropology Institute Max Planck Institute you know they, they want to sort of try to understand human behavior by studying great apes so obviously we can't study mm. our common ancestor because it doesn't live anymore so the next best thing is to study our closest mm. you know, living ancestors which are great apes so that's sort of the idea of the work of the Max Planck Institute is they want to try to understand as much as possible about humans by studying yeah you know, I, I know we were just talking yeah. about this because just by coincidence I read the book about mm. written by Svante Perboy who won yeah. uh, the Nobel Prize in medicine and physiology for mapping the human genome and it's just so fascinating and the whole institute that he's built up in Leipzig so you were actually were you working there as well no so I only actually went there once to meet the the man who then became my boss Christoph Busch who, yeah. who was running the, the the chimpanzee research work yeah um so no I spent the whole of my time when I was working for Max Planck actually out in the forests of Gabon so <gasps> spending more time with you know the wildlife yeah. than the than the Nobel Prize winners yeah you mentioned you, obviously you, the main part of your work was with with great apes. What is it you what do you love about them, or what what is it that attracts you to to working with them? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think like I said, it's, it's it was maybe the forests more that sort of attracted me. Um, I think I just like that kind of ecosystem. It's mm-hmm. sort of my favourite habitat um, would be the forest. Um, I mean, they are they are amazing it, to to watch them in the wild and to understand their behaviour. And it it is interesting how it sort of you know, reflects on human behaviour. Um, you know, you sort of understand human society a bit better, I think, if you sort of understand great apes. We did do some quite interesting work um, when I was out in Gabon. The chimpanzees in Gabon, for example, they dip for honey. You get sort of bees' nests in a, you know, in a hole in a tree trunk and they want to eat the honey. So they have a particular set of tools that they make and they use to, to get to the honey. So they might have one sort of thick you know, a shorter, thick stick that they use to break into the nest and then they'll use, you know, a, a thinner stick with a sort of frayed end and they'll they'll do that with their teeth mm. to fray the end of the stick to, you know, to sort of use like a brush mm. to mop up the honey. And you call that a tool set. And elsewhere, which I then witnessed in Cameroon, they actually um, eat termites that live underground. They need a big pounding stick to break into the nest underground and then different sticks that the termites grab hold of and they can eat them. So they have a different sort of tool set. And really what you're seeing there is culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, just in just in between human societies where we use different tools for, for you know, it may be the same. Depending on like eating with a knife and fork versus a chopstick. You know, it's course. just different societies. Yeah. It's passed down in the generations. So you'll mm. see a population of chimps doing it one way and another population doing it a different way. So it's just, it's really interesting to learn about them. Yeah, well, I can see why you <laughs> why you enjoy uh, working in that field, definitely. It sounds fascinating. What's yeah. the thing that surprised you most? Is there something that's that's really taken you aback by what you've learnt from watching, observing these animals? Um, it's quite alarming how, probably how much like us, but in a, in a violent, quite, you know, scary way that, that chimps are like us. So they mm. actually have sort of, warfare you know intergroup warfare and we actually witnessed out in Gabon we heard it happening overnight you know screaming 
and quite close to camp. And we went out at the crack of dawn the next morning and did discover a, a chimp that had been attacked. We, we pieced it together by walking around mm. and finding evidence. We pieced together what had happened and we think it was a, another group who'd been out doing a territory patrol that wow. had come across this individual and, and attacked him and, and killed him. That sort of thing is quite alarming when you think, well, that goes on in the animal mm. kingdom, you know. I've heard that um, there's a relative to uh, chimpanzee bonobo, are they called, is that correct? Mm-hmm. That chimpanzees solve conflicts with violence. Bonobos, they solve conflicts by having lots of sex. That's right. Yeah, oh, that they do. That's absolutely <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. Maybe that's uh, more inspirational than, than the, the chimpanzees. Yeah, that, that's a great ape I haven't seen in the world, unfortunately. I've seen them in a sanctuary. They are amazing. Mm. Yeah. Gosh, oh. I think we could uh, fill up the whole of this, uh, this <laughs> podcast just talking about apes. Um, I, ha- I have to ask this other question. I have such a strong childhood memory from watching the film Gorillas in the Mist, which was released when I was about 12, I think. It's based, um, it's a story about Diane Fossey, who's mm-hmm. a primatologist a bit like you, and she had a very personal relation with gorillas. And I was just wondering, has your work been in any way similar to hers? Have you also had a bond a bit like that or lived close to any of the great apes? I, I wouldn't like to compare myself no. to, uh, <laughs> to the amazing people like Diane Fossey. I mean, I sort of grew up, yeah, reading her, her books as well. And, mm. and Jane Goodall, who, who's yeah. similarly for chimps, and also Burita Goldacas, who's worked very much on or- orangutan conservation. It's funny because I actually, for a long time, I used to think that I think I was born sort of 50 or 60 years too late because that mm. is exactly what I would have wanted to mm. do, be the one going out, making these discoveries, bringing all this to the world, you know, spearheading the conservation of these amazing animals. For a long time, I sort of thought, yeah. Um, But actually, I think now I don't feel that way anymore. I feel now that being a wildlife conservationist today, when wildlife conservation is critical within this climate and ecological crisis that we find ourselves in, wildlife conservation really is one of the most reliable, easiest, cheapest solutions that we have available. I wouldn't want to be doing anything else now. I think it's an extraordinary time to be a wildlife conservationist, so I'm, I'm thrilled. And um, so, no, I don't think I've, I, I couldn't compare the professional life I've had or <laughs> the personal experiences. I understand, <laughs> but have you still had close relations with the apes in any sort of similar way, or has it more been from a distance? Yeah, it's been very much from a distance, yeah. I mean, I think that's probably more of a modern way of studying and working with great apes now in the wild anyways we wouldn't try to make those personal encounters and for me anyway I don't think that I need that I want them to be safe and it's wonderful if I can see them but I don't need the close-up yeah um you know yeah more of a nature lover I think rather than you know having to sort of touch and feel I just want Mm. nature to be intact and (laughs) it's enough to know that it's there you talked about um the importance being a wildlife conservationist today is is incredibly important and actually very much needed. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what a conservation scientist does? Mm. Um, maybe quite top line. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, so conservation science is it's a sort of interdisciplinary field. It looks at biodiversity and natural environments and then the interactions between humans and all of these sort of ecological processes. So as a conservation scientist, you'd be looking at what's causing the, the loss or the decline of, of nature but also what you can do to protect the nature. So you perhaps will try to identify what the main problems are and then think up solutions and then try those solutions out. Um, So after I was living in Gabon, I then moved over to Cameroon and it's a very different situation there. I talked about Gabon being full of amazing wildlife. 
Cameroon forests were a lot more degraded, so it was a lot harder to, to see wildlife. Um, and so the work that we did there was about trying to understand what wildlife are there and the trends in terms of over time, you know, are we seeing declines in wildlife? And at the same time, are we seeing human pressures? So obviously there's sort of hunting or there's gathering of wood and other products from the forest and, um, you know, the forest being cut down for farming, that sort of thing. So we would be monitoring those pressures and then also the trends in the wildlife. We were documenting these declines and these increasing pressures, and yet we couldn't really do a lot about it because mm. the money was spent on the research um, and not on the conservation practice. So working for the Born Free Foundation now, what we're able to sort of put the money into the, the conservation actions, so those solutions that we want to try out to see if we can improve the situation for wildlife. Um, so as an example of the conservation science that we do, um, human-wildlife conflict is one of biggest problems facing wildlife in, in many parts of the world today, and it's what Born Free addresses in most of its programmes. And so that's very much about when people live close to wildlife, um, say on in the, the buffer zone of a national park where you know elephants will come and go out of the park. Mm. If you're a farmer living on, on the periphery there trying to grow your crops to feed your family but also to sell, and elephants come out of the park every month or so and eat your crops mm-hmm. in a night and your livelihood is gone and you're, you know, it's a very big problem. Mm. Um, so a lot of our work is trying to think of often quite sort of simple tools that we can offer these farmers to try to deter elephants. Um, so one example is, and, and we've just uh, built the first few, is beehive fences. So oh. African elephants are sort of naturally afraid of bees, oh. which is Quite interesting to think that they are, but they yeah. can be stung in soft places and it's <laughs> and they don't like it. So we string up beehives, so maybe 10 beehives around a farm mm-hmm. linked with wire. And if an elephant tries to go into the farm and hits the wire, shakes all the beehives and the bees oh, come out wow. and the elephants move away. So it's just a, a very Natural simple deterrence. deterrent. Yeah. yeah, And it also means that the farmers can harvest the honey and use very the honey. Very clever. Um, and also, I guess, the bees in pollination, maybe they will, that, yeah. that will be also an added. It's a great thing, yeah. yeah. And so as a conservation scientist, what we want to do is work out, well, does that work? Hmm. So, you know, first of all, we set up our beehive fence and we have to monitor it to make sure that, you know, the hives are being occupied by bees, hmm. that the wire is connected and it's not falling apart. And then you have to monitor whether it's having the effect that you want. So are the elephants actually being deterred? So we can go and visit the farmers every week and ask them questions and find out. And have they? Has it worked? Well, it's early days. Yeah. It's early days. Yeah. Um, we do have bees in some of the hives already. We don't yet have evidence of whether it's working or not, but that's what we're monitoring them to find out. Yeah. And then with time, you would try to find out from the farmers whether that then improves their attitudes towards the elephants and their tolerance of, of the elephants, because then yeah. you get true coexistence. Mm. If the farmers are like, oh, yeah, we love elephants. They don't bother us. You know, that's yeah. what we're aiming to achieve. But it's a, it's a very complex situation and a long road to get to that. Yeah. So then those those 10 years or the long period in Cameroon, what, what else did you see in the sort of decline or evolution of wildlife? Um, well, in Cameroon, the, the main threats are um, hunting. So obviously the, the local people have for millennia hunted bushmeat, we call it, which is just sort of wild meat. But then we also have the kind of commercial side of that. So increasingly there's, well, I mean, it's wildlife crime, I suppose. You get these sort of syndicates who poach um, professionally mm. and then sell it for a huge profit. And then the, the local people can get kind of involved in that. Mm. Um, they might facilitate the hunting or they might be paid to, to kill the animals and then somebody comes and collects them. So there are various ways that they can also get involved in that illegal side of it. We tried to work with 
the villagers to sort of give them alternatives. So one of the objectives that we have in our programme now is that we provide training for farmers to learn to do sustainable agroforestry. So that's something that they do anyway, is they do they do farming, but what they tend to do is chop down some forest each year to use the fertile soil, and within a couple of years it's infertile and they abandon it and chop down the next bit. Mm. So we're sort of teaching them ways to do that sustainably so they can just use composting or quite simple ways mm. of restoring mm. the soil and they can use it for longer. Um, and then actually turning that into a reliable income so they can sell the cocoa um, and then they can plant food crops there as well. So sort of making it, yeah, making it a system which which works for everyone. Yeah. Good. Yeah. yeah. So you've been here in Horsham since 2018 when you joined um, the Born Free Foundation as head of conservation. Could you tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing, that we have been doing and, and are doing now? Yeah, sure. So I, I joined as conservation manager and then and later became the head of conservation. Um, so... Should I tell you a bit about Born Free as a yeah, charity? Actually, yes, please. Yes, yeah. 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 well, so it was set up, I mean, I think back in 1984 by Dame Virginia McKenna and her late husband, Bill Travers, and their eldest son, Will Travers. So it was set up sort of in response to um, the story of Poli Poli, the elephant, who was actually gifted to London Zoo from, I think it was Kenya. Um, and it was quite a sad story because they campaigned for Poli Poli not to be sent to the zoo and then they used to go and visit her in the zoo and at some point they tried to move her to Whipsnay just to give her you know more space and sadly she died on on the way over there so you know that was very much the reason for for starting up the the foundation which campaigns to uh, stop the exploitation and suffering of all wild animals in captivity but also in the wild um so born free has sort of four main pillars of its programmatic work so it has the rescue and care um, and also does the campaigning against well, zoos and, and keeping animals in captivity in other ways. And then it has its policy arm. So we do a lot of policy advocacy and we sit on a lot of boards and we're trying to push animal welfare into a lot of forums around the world. Um, and then we have an education arm and then we have a conservation arm of work. And the education works in the UK and globally and then the conservation work is globally. So I head up that team, the conservation team. Um, we have five main projects of our own that we manage and run. So we have three in Kenya that work on lions and elephants and giraffes. And then we have one in Cameroon, which is the project I've talked about a little bit with great apes. Um, and then we have one in India as well, which looks to protect tigers across a vast landscape of central India. And then we also support other sort of third party partners as well. You know, so we can support an, an organisation that works on orangutans or, mm. um, you know, whatever else we sort of want to, to help. Mm-hmm. And are you focused mainly on those countries where the issues are even more pressing than they are here now? Because, of course, there are species becoming extinct here as well. But are you working locally as well? or We don't do conservation work locally, no, mm. but you're absolutely right. I think that it certainly is something that we are aware of and I would like to do more of. I mean, we do have a strategy behind the species that we do focus on, so we kind of have a taxa focus where we will focus on the conservation of a, a big, charismatic, sort of apex species in a landscape, so like a lion or an elephant. Mm. But the reason for doing that is partly that it's nice stories for our supporters, the supporters can really understand and yeah. you know, they want to help, but also it does protect landscapes and it protects ecosystems that so many other species live in as well so you know and, and the, you know, the habitats themselves so there are strategic reasons as to why we focus our work that way yeah, yeah so it's a very holistic approach isn't it exactly because it has to you have to look at every, That's every right. angle yeah i mentioned obviously about the humans yeah um who live in those communities to 
understand um yeah. and obviously you've been here for five years do you ever get itchy feet to go back to to africa or or elsewhere yeah well i'm um, sort of i mean i've allowed sort of maybe each year obviously covid sort of put a stop to that for a while but we will go out to visit our projects yeah. possibly annually or every couple of years so i still do you know i do have that privilege which is wonderful but no, it was the right time in my sort of career and my personal life as well to be putting down some roots. So I was happy to come back to the UK. I could have moved anywhere in the UK, to be honest, but it was a job that brought me to Horsham. In fact, the you know, Born Free was set up here. Maybe one day in the future I'd go back out. <laughs> so we've, you know, obviously your work, we were talking about it being a, a frightening time, a very crucial time for conservation mm. to happen. And it's obviously very real, but Born Free works to protect animals and um, I'm quite an optimist and mm. I like to look at the optimistic side of things so there must be some positives that you've um, you've done what can you talk about some of those positive stories that perhaps have stood out or key key targets you've hit um, what are some of those, those stories that you feel proud about yeah the born freeze achieved? yeah yeah, it's, I think it is important to be optimistic. It is hard in conservation sometimes. Um, I mean, obviously there are big successes in, in conservation, like we mentioned, sort of the mountain gorillas um, coming back from the brink. But often the successes in conservation are really quite small, sort of bite-sized. You know, we might have the goal of increasing the population of a species, but you'd break that down in reality to steps. So you might, you know, in the first year just want to see an improvement in attitudes of the local people and in the second year you might want to see you know the the forests being cut down less or you know so it's it's very step by step kind of way of measuring success i think so it is often hard i think to understand that that is success um and a lot of the time i think also you have to bear in mind that there's a counterfactual argument whereby if if we weren't there doing the work we're doing how much worse would it have been yes. in our absence? You know, so you could even the time I was in Cameroon, you know, documenting these declines, you still think, well, we did actually show that the the, the amount of wildlife in the forest was similar to inside the reserve and slightly higher than other regions where there wasn't any conservation work. So even though you're seeing a decline, you know, you're slowing that decline down. I know that sounds, you know, awful, but it's something. Yeah, that, no, that's that, a, that's a yeah positive, it is a positive. It is. Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously it's nice to, to sort of be optimistic, but I think we do have to bear in mind that there are stronger forces working against this kind of conservation. Um, and I think it's very important to be aware of that. And, mm. and, you know, I think we sort of our efforts in wildlife conservation and, and nature protection generally, you know, it should, we shouldn't really be relying on charities that rely on individual donations yeah, from the public. Very good point. It really should be um, a much bigger yeah. um, investment than that. I'm so glad that you, you are an optimist because I, I'm not, you know, no. I, I uh, think that we live in such scary times now mm. and just the fact that human population has exploded going from 2 billion to 8 billion in, in a century, that's just incredibly frightening and like you say, politicians just have to... I don't know, we shouldn't have to rely on charities. No, I, I suppose the thing but, in conservation is we don't, I mean... Conservation is all about working with people and when we're working in these environments where people are living close to wildlife, we are trying to reduce the conflict and achieve sort of coexistence mm. whereby they can live together. Um, and obviously it does increase that, that conflict when you have more mm. people, but the number of people doesn't have to be the problem. You know, it's, it's just sort of accepting that we are part of nature. It's not so much sort of the number of people. 
that's the problem but it's the mm. way we live and you know in the west we're we're doing it all wrong I and mean, it's very hard for people to live sustainably because of the society we live in mm-hmm. you know we, we we have to heat our homes somehow yeah. we have to get around somehow and we have to eat somehow we don't have the choices mm. as many choices and that's what needs to be changed i mean individual action is brilliant the more people who can think about the way they consume and what they consume and what they eat and how they travel the better mm. you know but that's really we have to make changes quite radical changes from the top down to actually recalibrate the way we sort of live with nature yeah do you think that's the key that we just have to understand more widely across the board that we are part of something so much bigger that we're not just i don't know well what can we do on a on a sort of individual level you know the fact our our society is set up in a way that it makes it very difficult but Mm. Is there anything we can do to putting pressure on governments to, to make those changes? Or what can we do as individuals yeah. to help conservation? There's, there's so much we can do. I mean, I think, you know, any individual has to make a choice as to where their role lies in this. And, you know, obviously that depends on a lot of things and no one should judge anyone else. But we can do so much. I mean, easy things that we can do, really. Eat less meat, fly less. We can talk to people, talk to family and friends, you know let them know what they can do to help and that this is a problem because it's it's surprising how little people really understand mm. but it's also hard i find it because uh, it's so polarized and it's also you feel so insignificant as well as an individual i know it's just like walking yeah, around yeah. in circles well um, i mean you can take it a step further you can stand up join yeah. non-violent civil disruptive protests i mean that's you know that's the way that things are going and a lot of organizations even are are standing up now and saying actually we need to stand up to the government you know there's a lot of options but also there are small you know there are tiny things that people can do I mean look up Born Free's work for example you can Mm. make a small donation something like 10 pound will buy a pair of pliers where we can um, our desnaring team goes out and removes wire snares from the national park and that will save the lives of wildlife and reduce uh, the, the pressures on wildlife there mm. 40 pound will buy a beehive for the, the beehive okay. fences that we were talking about so mm. there are so many little things that people can do i think people just have to find what they're comfortable with obviously being a conservation scientist you can make some meaningful change and um, for anyone that might want to follow a similar path what kind of skills do you need if any of our listeners younger listeners might be looking to to go Mm. into conservation yeah well I mean conservation needs so many different skills actually that's that's the exciting thing I think and like I said for me that wasn't an an easy career path Mm. into conservation science but I think that is a lot easier now so if you want to go into it through a a science route that is easier you know there are courses at university and Mm. but also there's you can come in as um as a social scientist, that's a very important thing. We've been talking about how yeah. you know how much community involvement in the work is so important. So understanding social science is very, very important. But also, if you wanted to work for a charity like Born Free, then so many other skills would be relevant. Like, you know, you could come in as a communicator, an educator, you know, content creation, finance, so many different skills. And really, we need all of them. So bring your skills to conservation. <laughs> So we, we know that you, you care very deeply about uh, the ecosystem and that you're very concerned about the, cha- the challenges that we're heading towards and already facing. You're an environmental activist. Is there anything that you... Do you have any final remarks before we conclude? Yeah. Do you, I know that you have a newsletter, for instance, here in Horsham. Yeah, true. I mean, I try and do all sorts of different things locally as well as through my work to help the situation. So yes, I have been compiling a, a local newsletter the idea is to talk about any sort of local actions that are about helping the environment um, and then distributing that to a local mailing list. 
Um, but also I do sort of other things like I'm a member of the, I volunteer for the Wildlife Trust and I'm a member of some other wildlife charities and yeah, I'll, I'll do a lot of sort of signing petitions and sharing things on social media and like I said, talking as much as possible just about mm-hmm. what I care about. Um, but I think, yeah, I, mean, I think there's a, so many things that people can do. And one of the things that is interesting to think about is what your values are. I think we're a little bit too swamped sometimes in our society with what you might term sort of junk values. What you think about and what you care and talk about is you know, not really the things that matter. It might be, you know, what you're going to go and spend your money on or, mm. you know, something you've watched on TV or... Whereas if you sort of drill down and think, well, what am I actually, what are my values? And it, it probably is for most people, things like, you know, family and, mm. and loyalty and compassion and it might be nature, mm. you know, things like that. And I think if we sort of really try to get in tune with those values, I think it can guide you and make you happier in life. That's a really good point, isn't it? Yeah. Actually kind of identifying the areas that you do identify more with or feel passionate about you're going to naturally make more yeah. inroads, aren't you, in yeah. change? Yeah. And it goes back to the whole thing you were saying about it. conservation isn't just about animals, it's mm. about the whole picture, isn't it? And yeah, and one other thing that I often think, because working for Born Free, as I mentioned, we're sort of, we campaign against zoos, really, um, whereas for me, it's not such a black and white issue. Mm-hmm. But I think one thing I would say about zoos is that I don't think it necessarily... Because obviously it has a role in education, you know, educating people about wildlife. But I don't think it necessarily teaches kids, for example, the right message. Because Mm. kids will go to a zoo and they'll see a tiger behind a pane of glass. You know, that doesn't teach them about how they are part of nature. It increases the disconnect, if anything. Mm. You know, they might learn about lions, but they're not going to learn about how important nature is to to that child yeah, you know yeah. whereas I think what kids need to do is just get out into nature even if it's not such exotic nature it would be butterflies and you know <laughs> mm. foxes but that's you know that's all great um, and that's actually a better way to educate kids about nature and yeah. about wildlife and the importance of it and their role in it and I think then that would help us sort of understand that you know we need to be coexisting with nature as well mm. that's not just something that we ask of farmers living on a the buffer zone of a national park in of Kenya <laughs> but we need to do it as well you know we're we're disconnected from nature because we mm. get our water out of a tap and our food from the supermarket, but we, we rely on it just as much. And I have to say, there are some pretty amazing forests just here where we live. Yes. Yeah, well, we have, We're on the doorstep to NEP, which yes. is yes. Uh, that rewilding True. project. You, know, you can see amazing species just by walking around there. And, yeah, and exactly. You know, yeah, that's what I would encourage people to do rather than going to the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> so in what way can people support the Born Free Foundation? You can have a look at our website, so it's bornfree.org.uk. There are various different ways that people can support us. We do have an, an adoption scheme whereby they can pick their sort of favourite animal and adopt that animal, and they'll get updates from the field about how the, the species and the, the family of animals are, are doing. Um, we also have um, a, a current appeal which is ongoing, which is about human-wildlife conflict that I talked about a bit, so they can really help in very tangible, simple ways to help reduce conflict in the, the parts of the world that we um, work in, such as the beehive fences and there mm. are other tools that reduce conflict as well. Oh, thanks, Nikki. It's been it's been lovely speaking to you, and thank you so much for yes. talking us through everything. Yeah, yeah. it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Sounding Out Horsham. You make it worthwhile. Yes, and now we want to ask you something. If you enjoy our podcast, we would really appreciate it if you could spread the word and tell other people all about it by liking us on social media and sharing our posts. 
We've met so many fascinating individuals since we started sounding out Horsham, and we'd love it if more people in the community could hear their stories. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Sounding Out Horsham. And of course, don't hesitate to get in touch. Thank you.